Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We'll begin in prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The incarnate angel and the prophet's summit and boast, the second forerunner of the coming of Christ our God, Elijah the Glorious, from above sent down his grace upon Eliseus. He dost cast out sickness and does heal lepers, and unto all that honor him he pours forth streams of cures. O renowned Elijah, prophet and seer of the mighty works of God, who by thy word didst check the rain clouds, intercede on our behalf with the only friend of man, Christ our God. To him be glory both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Marshner, welcome back. Thank you, sir. We um, covered last time a number of the uh, roles of the minor figures in modernism. Uh, tonight, I want to spend about uh, the first hour talking about the two major figures, namely Alfred Loisie in France and George Tyrrell in England. The second hour is going to be devoted entirely to going through the exact propositions condemned in 1907 in the... Uh, uh, syllabus, as it was called, the anti-modernist syllabus. Lamentabili sane exitu is its name in Latin. It was a general decree of uh, the Holy See. And um, you need to hear in some detail exactly what the modernists were saying and what the Pope condemned. Okay? Well, in that spirit, I want to begin with um, the work of Alfred Loisie. I'm going to, I mentioned last time what he had to say about miracles. And um, that was in a paper he published under a pseudonym. He published a whole series of articles under the pseudonym Firmin. F-I-R-M-I-N. And he um, went on to publish, finally, in 1902, a book under his own name. The name of that book in English, The Gospel and the Church. In French, L'Evangile et l'Église, The Gospel and the Church. The occasion for writing the book was the appearance of another book in Berlin. Berlin was another great center of liberal Protestant scholarship, as you can imagine. And the chief scholar there was a fellow named Harnack. 
Adolf Harnack, H-A-R-N-A-C-K. Harnack was a great historian of early Christian literature, uh, biblical critic, and so on and so on. And in 1901, he put out a little book called The Essence of Christianity. Das Wesen des Christendoms, The Essence of Christianity. And it caused quite a stir in France in the following year. Harnack set up an opposition between the gospel on the one hand and all of the known historical forms of Christianity on the other hand. He thought that all of those historical forms of Christianity were distortions, deformations, complexifications of the gospel. And what was the heart of the gospel? He um, laid out in, in, in this book. Now, on May the 18th, 1902, Wazi wrote to his friend, uh, the Baron von Hugel, that he was going to write a book that would vindicate the historical Catholic Church against this new Protestant criticism. He was going to refute Harnack. That's what he said he was going to do. You know, it's a bad thing to say you're going to refute, refute somebody if you turn out to write a book worse than his. And that is what Lawazi did. In order to attack Lawazi, um, uh, to attack Harnack, Loisy just insinuated a whole new sense of Christianity. How, how would you like this? Suppose somebody came along and said, you know what the essence of Catholicism is? As opposed to Protestantism. You know what? How would you put it in a capsule? The essence of Protestantism is fixity. Unchanging fixity. The essence of Catholicism is open-ended development. Huh? Has any church ever been more often accused in history of being too moss-backed to ever move, never change anything? Yeah. But Lawazi switches it 180 degrees. He accused the Protestants of being the fans of fixity, because they believe in the text of scripture. Lawazi, of course, eh, had a different attitude towards that text, or rather towards what it meant. And he attacked Harnack at this, for entertaining the idea of an essence of Christianity. Now, if I say the essence of a thing, what do I probably mean by that? I mean that about it which is central and doesn't change. So you can still recognize this is what we're talking about. So the essential features, the unchanging features, are the essence of a thing. Well, Harnack believed there was something permanent to the gospel of Jesus Christ, some permanent points, and that is what Wazi attacked. He said it was pseudo-theology. 
derived from an insufficient analysis of the sources. When subjected to a rigorous criticism, the gospel of Jesus would be reduced to the preaching of the kingdom. Now, Harnack had taken the view that the heart and soul of Christianity was the teaching of Jesus about spiritual matters, about the love of God the Father and so on. I don't want to talk about essence here, but those are certainly main points. Now, the Wazee, on the other hand, says, if you look at the Gospels as an historian, you will see that the Gospel reduces to the preaching of the kingdom. Preaching of the kingdom. Well, what kingdom is that? Well, uh, the kingdom was going to be a purely eschatological hope such as contemporary Jews indulged. The kingdom was the restoration of a throne to a successor of David to be set up in Jerusalem. Yeah. And so this is what Jesus allegedly preached. And Lawazi says, this is why he said, don't, don't worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat. It's all coming to an end. Great big cataclysmic, cataclysmic intervention by God in history. The whole Gentile world is going to be overthrown. The whole economy of the Gentile world is going to be overthrown. And God will reestablish the kingdom in Israel. But it's a kingdom such as the Jews had already hoped for. A kingdom of this world and in this world. Huh? Never mind that Jesus said the contrary. Like all subsequent biblical critics, Luazi had a knack for picking out of the sayings of our Lord just the few little things he agreed with and getting rid of all the rest. If any saying of Jesus didn't satisfy Luazi's own ideas, he said it was, well, it was late. Well, it was secondary. Well, it was an invention of the church. You've heard this kind of stuff before? Yeah. Okay. So all Jesus did originally is call people to repentance because the kingdom was at hand. Okay. Now, this means that for Jesus, there was never any question of setting up a new religion. Why would you do, why'd you do that in a world destined to perish? Eh? No, no new religion. Um, only a renunciation in view of the impending catastrophe that would introduce the kingdom. When the, when the catastrophe came, guess what? Jesus was no longer going to be a traveling rabbi or preacher. Jesus was going to be the new king in Jerusalem. Okay? That's what the original title Messiah meant. If you look back at the, at the second Psalm and other things in the book of Psalms, you'll see that um, the anointed one was the, was the successor of David who would become king. 
And uh, so if you took that just in this um, geopolitical sense, that's what Jesus thought he was, according to Lavoisier. Okay. He wasn't exactly the Messiah yet because he wasn't on the throne yet. Rather, he was the Messiah to be chosen for the role when the mysterious moment came. Okay. And um, the term Messiah um, didn't mean anything, according to Lavoisier, except a descendant of David, okay, called to be the king in the coming kingdom. It didn't have anything to do with being the son of God, says Lavoisier. All that came later. All that was due to a Gentile misunderstanding. All right. Now, in this original form, the hope of the inbreaking of the kingdom, um, the gospel was never realized or fulfilled, says Loisie. No, no, no. Jesus announced the kingdom, but the church is what came, says he in a famous um, epigram. All the church did was to adapt the notion of the kingdom to the different conditions of various times and places. Okay? So the church was to continue the work of Christ in a way, but by taking his original message and adapting it. His original message had been a geopolitical message. But in the hands of the church, it becomes a spiritual and salvific message. Um, how could you justify that? How would Lawsy justify that? Wasn't Jesus just wrong about the imminently coming kingdom? And didn't the church just eh, brush that under the rug by uh, saying, well, I mean, it was about spiritual things. And Lawsy said, well, you know, the only test of a doctrine is that it lives. The church has always made those adaptations which would allow herself and her message to continue to succeed in new generations. And that kind of sociological success is the definition of true religion. How do you like that? Alfred Loisie. What else shall I tell you about this charming character? The experience of the past, he says, shows that one must put the essence of Christianity in its becoming, not in its fixity. Christianity is a, 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 it's, it's a becoming. It's a dynamism, a development. Yes. Well, um, you can therefore infer the high probability of future developments. And the future developments are going to take all of the dogmas we have now and refashion them 
if you can take the alleged preaching of our Lord about the heavenly Jerusalem and the geopolitical power he was going to exercise there and metamorphose them into some spiritual talk about the kingdom of God and the empire of Christ in souls, if you can do that, then you can do, well, you can interpret the Marian dogmas in such a way that she's kicked out of them. Huh? The Immaculate Conception, well, that just means that uh, Our Lady, uh, that she received all sorts of grace. That's all. She was just tip-topped up with grace. That's all it means. Sorry. It's not all it means. Huh? There's an historical dimension which has been thrown away. Um, everything depends upon the meaning one attaches to the formulas of the faith that have been evolved in the past. And if you approach them in the right spirit, you will see that they are all utterly and deeply revisable. Okay. Now, let me just say a quick word about how this kind of thinking differs from classical Catholic thinking about the development of doctrine. We admit not all of our doctrines were explicitly stated or understood from the very beginning. Well, then how did we get to them? Answer, by reasoning. Yes. There had to be a logical connection between what had been said before and what we were saying now. What we were saying now as a new development had to be consistent with what had been said before. It had to develop it, preserve its general principles, and uh, make it grow, never denying anything. Well, as for Lavoisier, no, you could, you could, you could deny the old stuff. They just radically transform its sense. Okay. Now then, let me put the point I just made into a more technical form. For the tradition of the church, the development of doctrine is a question of reasoning from consistent first principles, if you will, original doctrines and so on, down to consistent logical results, logically consistent results. Okay, so we go from starting points to end points in development by thinking it through logically. Okay. For Loisie, that was not the case. The judgment, logic, reasoning from one judgment to another had nothing to do with it. No. Development was based on a shift of concept. A shift of concept. Huh. The Jewish concept 
of the kingdom as based in Jerusalem and exercised in this world and to be replaced by a different concept. Yes. And so development takes place by what we may as well call conceptual mutation. Does everybody see what I'm saying? This is not the traditional way of doing things. John Henry Newman wrote a very famous book, The Development of Christian Doctrine. Anybody here read that book? Yes, it's wonderful. Development of Christian Doctrine. History of the development. Anyway, Newman devoted no end of space in his text to discussing the logical relations between what had been preached before and what was preached in the new developments. The, test is, the tests are logical. All of that is thrown away by Loisy. Of course he talks about development of doctrine. Don't you believe in development of doctrine? Well, yeah. But see, he's importing into that term a brand new and unprecedented meaning and a brand new and thoroughly mysterious uh, uh, mechanism, okay? The mechanism is change of concepts. Uh All right, suppose I sit and watch you for a couple of days uh, it's not, you don't know I'm there. I'm just, I'm just watching. It was you go about your daily business. And uh, I see that you say some things on Monday and say other things on Tuesday and, and uh, do some jobs on Wednesday and other jobs on Friday. And, yeah, okay. I can see you change jobs. I can see you change what you say, your verbiage. But just sitting there, can I see your concepts change? You see, a concept is not accessible to human examination. What you you say something, you're making a judgment. I can get at that. That's what you say. I can get at that. I can deal with that. I can go through the words to the statement you're making. So it's not exactly empirical, but it is accessible to human understanding. But concepts, concepts can be any darn thing you want them to be. Now, I know that's not true in scholastic philosophy. In the scholastic system, we have a a strict definition of what a concept is and so on. But Loisy was anti-scholastic, and so were all the other modernists. And so they had no fixed idea of what a concept is. And so they could attribute conceptual change on any evidence they pleased. And thus, Christianity for them would become constantly reinterpretable, everlastingly uh, flexible, that is spineless, doctrineless, 
um, and, and so on. Now, after writing his big book, uh, The Gospel and the Church Laws, he also wrote some smaller ones defending uh, L'Evangile L'Eglise. And I'm not going to talk about those. In those books, he made himself clearer in the following way. If you pick up that book, The Gospel and the Church, and read it, you will be impressed by how mystical he often sounds. How he, oh, he can write beautifully about all kinds of things. He's, he, he carries you along with beautiful rhetoric. And uh, that's just why a lot of people who read him didn't understand how radical he really was. But when you get into the later books, like Around and About a Little Book, Autour d'un Petit Livre, and Sample Reflexion, get around to the later books, he drops the sweet rhetoric. Okay. And so his real testy convictions become much more clear. All right, enough about Alfred Loisie. We'll see a number of his propositions when we go through the items in Lamentabili. I'm now ready to talk about George Tyrrell. George Tyrrell was born poor. His father was a journalist working in Dublin, uh, a Protestant journalist working in Dublin. And um, they, um, uh, they grew up, they, they had no money, um, but somehow the mother scraped together nickels and dimes. The father died before he was born. Scraped together nickels and dimes to send him to uh, some sort of schooling. And subsequently, for reasons that he couldn't very well explain later, young George Tyrrell was attracted to Catholicism. Just, you know, gee, Catholic Church kind of neat. And then he became a Jesuit novice in September of 1880. 17 years later, in 1897, he published his first book, uh, kind of a collection of articles called Nova et Vetera, in Latin, New Things and Old. Okay. <laughs> it was a collection of, you know, sermons and exhortations and and devotional things and so on. Uh, it was a mishmash, a, a non-book, a mishmash, but his devotional statements didn't ring quite right. His ideas were very untraditional. <sighs> Sounded funny. Unconventional and untraditional. Okay. Then what happened? Baron von Hugel saw the book. I talked about him last week. Money bags had eyes everywhere. He saw the book and wrote right away to Father Tyrrell saying, gee, I saw your Nova Advera. I just got a fresh 
fresh air spirit in there. I I like that a lot. Uh, why don't you uh, write on back to me and um, let's get acquainted and, and, and tell me what you're thinking. Okay. Well, on December the 6th, 1897, George Tyrrell wrote a letter to Baron von Hugel explaining his current attitude, what he was up to, and um, indicating how he'd been trying to use Aquinas in his teaching. Wait a minute. This is different. Modernists don't usually use Aquinas. They forget him as thoroughly as possible. Am I not right? Well, that wasn't Tyrrell's approach. What was his approach? He explained it to the Baron von Hubel as follows. Quote, the fact is that Aquinas represents a far less developed theology than that of the later scholastics. And by going back to him, one escapes from many of the superstructures of his more narrow-minded successors. And thus one gets a liberty to unravel and reconstruct along more sympathetic lines. <laughs> I go on. I would thus use the neo-scholastic movement to defeat the narrow spirit which animates its promoters. Aquinas was essentially liberal-minded and sympathetic. Dot, dot, dot. This is what I fought for for two years. My feeling was that, now get this, under cover of Aquinas, much might have been quietly introduced and assimilated unconsciously, which will be opposed if presented in an alien and hostile garb. Unquote. There it is. In 1897, George Tyrrell prophetically, if I, well, I don't want to say that. He wasn't a prophet. He was a heretic. <laughs> rather in a secular sense prophetically anticipated the way that modernism would work after World War I okay up until World War I everybody followed the advice of von Hugel and so did Tyrrell von Hugel wrote back to the letter I've just been quoting from and said Tyrrell you're out of your mind you can't use that Aquinas. He's, he's awful, terrible old stuff. You got to get out of that and latch on to new stuff and get with it. Well, that's what Tyrrell did. He followed von Hugel's advice. And first he wrote some clandestine little books under pseudonyms. Then he finally put something out under his own name and ended up condemned. Okay. Um, only after the First World War did the strategy reemerge of trying to pack new ideas like the ideas of Kant and Hegel 
into Aquinas. So that by teaching him transcendentally, one discovers the route to modernism. Well, that's all I have to say for the moment about Lavoisier and Tyrrell. We are going to take, are we going to take a break now or do I have more time? Like, ah. You've got more time, doctor. You've got about a um, good 20 minutes. Oh, all right. In that case, I will tell you about uh, Gerald's fascination with intuition and his reluctance to ever use a clear definition. Okay. Getting him to know von Hugo led him to the French school and Loisy's critical methods. And when Tyrrell learned of Alfred Loisy's work, he took Loisy's most radical conclusions as the established wisdom on the subject of what the Gospels meant. This is a, a, a characteristic that one sees ever and again in uh, modernist inclining or progressive Catholics. They listen to the up-to-date, that is to say the radical exegesis. Then instead of subjecting the theories of the exegetes to the same kind of critical consideration that the exegetes give to our Lord's words, they take those exegetical theories as the established truth of scholarship about the gospel. Okay? Even when it isn't. Even when, if you know the literature of the biblical critics, you see how much they disagree with one another. Wazi had this idea, you know, that everything in the gospel could be understood by going back to the original hope of a political restoration of a kingdom of God in Jerusalem. Now, this is called the eschatological reading of, 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 of Jesus. Did all the other contemporary uh, radical critics agree with that? Absolutely not. No. That was rejected by quite a including not only Harnack, but lots of later ones. If I use the name Boltmann, Will that stimulate anyone's loathing? Rudolf Bultmann, foremost left liberal exegete of the Protestant churches in the 40s and the 50s. Um, uh, Bultmann did not think that everything could be traced back to the eschatological hope for the new kingdom. Anyway, um, Tyrrell recognized that he didn't he didn't have the tools to uh, 
uh, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with any of the radical biblical critics. So he just swallowed everything Wazi said. This is now science speaking. This is it. Okay. And after he had digested the alleged science for a while, he started writing little books that explained more clearly his own thinking. Uh, the first of these I'm going to mention was called Religion as a Factor of Life. Religion as a Factor of Life. Did he write it under his own name? Oh, no. He wrote it under a made-up name, Hilaire Bourdon. I'm sorry, Dr. Ernest Engels. Dr. Ernest Engels was the pseudonym that he gave the alleged author of Religion as a Factor of Life. This little book was an essay on religion. It says religion calls us back to, to what? The sense of the absolute. The sense of the absolute. Why is it important that religion call us back to that? Because, says uh, Tyrrell under this pseudonym, the absolute is what dominates our will. Oh. I thought, uh, I thought the uh, desire for happiness or something was what dominated the will, wasn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, but as Tyrrell read Aquinas there in the Prima Secundae, Aquinas was saying that the end of man, the end we desire, is absolute good, okay? And so you just drop the word good and you've got absolute, which is a word made famous by Hegel, and we're off right. Okay, the sense of the absolute, which dominates our will. So religion starts in the will. I just, I just gotta have, I just, oh, I gotta have the absolute. I, just, I need the absolute. I want the absolute. Then, only then, does the mind get to work. The intellect tries to translate the absolute as we desire it in our moral life into concepts. See, will will produces desires. You want you want good, you want better, you want the best, you want the best of all, you want the best of everything. Yeah, you want, you want, you want, you want, you want. Now you're going to take take those wants and translate them into concepts, according to Tyrrell. And that is the origin of dogma. In this attempt, the intellect can only arrive at, guess what? Symbols. Symbols which are practically true, but speculatively false. In other words, the, op the propositions we come up with, we try to describe, how can I describe the absolute? 
What am, does it have a tail? Does it weigh much? I don't know. How am I going to describe the absolute? Whatever I say about it is going to be, in fact, false. But it might support my yearning and my desire, and that would make it practically true. You see? Practical truth versus eh, factual truth. This is one of Tyrrell's most important distinctions. All that matters for our symbols is their fitness to guide our action. Fitness to guide our action. Now there was another chap, contemporary with Father Tyrrell, writing in France, named Edouard Rochwa, capital L-E, capital R-O-Y, two capitals, L and R, Rochwa, who maintained that the whole meaning of dogma reduced to its practical content. Okay. We believe, do we not, in a personal God? Edouard Rouhoi said, the meaning of that dogma reduces to saying that you should deal with God as with a contemporary of yours. The confession that our Lord Jesus is God just means treat Jesus as you would a contemporary. Treat him as some friend you might meet on the street. What did the doctrine of the Eucharist mean, according to Father Leroy, not Father, Professor Leroy? Well, what, what do we do in the Eucharist? We transform it into the body and blood of Christ, right? What does that mean? According to Leroy, it just means you should treat the Eucharist, the consecrated host, as if you were dealing with Jesus himself. Now, is that a bad piece of pastoral advice? Heck no. That's kind of beautiful, actually. But it's not what the doctrine means. Okay? It... <laughs> Um, let's put it this way. The moral implications of the dogma come from its theoretical meaning. Okay? Body and blood, soul and divinity are brought into this host by transubstantiation, right? That's why I should be treating it as God in the flesh, as my Lord Jesus himself. Not the other way around. The moral stuff, as we understand it, the moral points, the pastoral points, follow from the dogmatic points. Yes. The Rois had it worked around the other way, and so did George Tyrrell. I haven't forgotten that I'm talking about him. Now, what is revelation, according to Father Tyrrell? Well, the religious world discovers bit by bit 
that the knowledge which comes to us is a revelation. Huh? The knowledge which comes to us bit by bit is a revelation. Any knowledge I have about something religious is revelation? Well, gee, that's news to me. Well, revelation then is learned only bit by bit. And it gets to be revelation when it becomes a personal act of intuition or mystical experience. Yes. You hear ideas kicked around, but when you open your heart to one of them, bingo, it becomes revelation. Okay, what goes on out in China? Somebody hears sayings of wise Confucius, twigs onto that, likes that. Is that a revelation? Tyrrell says, yes, it is. Uh-huh. All religions present phenomena <coughs> of this kind, mystical experiences, which are really, in my words, revelations. Says Tyrrell, all religions. Well, uh, hello, then what's the difference between one religion and another? Ah, Father Tyrrell was not an egalitarian. He said, looky here. Um, Those who are more favored as receptors of ideas, they become the prophets for the rest of us. So you're lucky if you live in the neighborhood of a sensitive, somebody with, I don't know, a tin hat and antenna. (laughs) He gets the right waves from the super stratosphere. And if you're in his neighborhood, why you get to benefit from prophecy. But, says Tyrrell, the greatest of these super sensitives were gathered in Israel. Uh-huh. The church has collected and furthered the tradition of the prophets. They're the best of the best. And that makes the church the guide of souls, the mistress of souls, par excellence. Okay? It's like this. The the church would be like a book collector. Think of the man who has sunk a fortune into his hobby and collected just the best written books, the most beautiful books, and put them on his shelves. That man is now, according to Tyrrell, a mistress of souls. Mm-hmm. I, I, I dropped the religious context. But many of Tyrrell's ideas make more sense when you drop the religious context. Religious context is just mystification. Now, so the church is the mistress of souls, and she's collected all of the best writings of the best sensitives 
and and, and just just the best uh, absolute glimpser, glimpsers. And now, um, does that mean that what she says, the church says, is true? Does it mean her doctrines are true? Oh, no. You have to treat them as symbols to which we apply the gospel maxim. It is the spirit which quickens the flesh profit of the nothing. Uh-huh. So it's the spirit that quickens. Never mind exactly what the doctrine says. Never mind exactly what the prophet said. It's the spirit of the thing. And what is that spirit? Well, whatever, whatever the exegete wants it to be. Whatever the modernist theologian wants it to be. What, what, what is the essence? Of, you know, what is like the constitutive greatness of a prophet? He prefers the future to the past. Is that it? Well, then, if that's what you are, you're, if that's how you think you're a prophet. See how this works? It's quite subjective. The year 1907 was an absolutely magic year in the church's response to modernism. Let it be said that a number of bishops in that era, 1905, 1907, were Johnny's on the spot when it came to seeing what was wrong with this stuff. And they didn't all wait for Rome to tell them it was all right to bite back at these people. I'm thinking of Cardinal Richard, Cardinal Archbishop of Paris, when he found out about Father Hebert's secret authorship of that crazy creed and stuff like that, he went after Hebert, threw him out of his job. And uh, he didn't wait for Rome to do it. So there you go, a bishop who's doing his job. (laughs) Father Hebert, by the way, did his job too. After he was exposed, he ran off to Belgium and finished his life as a socialist agitator. Isn't that a typical story? From Catholic liberal to socialist agitator? I don't, it seems to me. I want to talk about the magic year 1907, when Rome made two decisive interventions in this thing. In July of 1907, the church came out with the decree Lamentabili, which is what I'm going to work on with you tonight. Going one by one through, what do we got here, 80, 70 errors of the modernists. Let me count, 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 65. That's enough. 65 specific errors of the modernists. <clears throat> then in December of, by the way, did you just hear the date I gave when this document came out? It was the 4th of July. It was signed by the Pope on July the 3rd, but promulgated on July the 4th. So guess what I did one year? I bought 65 firecrackers. 
or you know, two brachas to send one up for every one of the condemned propositions. <laughs> Never mind, I'm crazy. <clears throat> um, in September of the same year, 1907, um, the Pope put out the famous encyclical Pascendi Dominici Gregis, shepherding the, the Lord's flock. And in that famous encyclical, he gives his analysis of how all the modernist eras sort of hang together and um, the philosophical foundations behind it. And then he cites some remedies, things to do about it, and and so on. The encyclical uh, Pascendi is not hard to get hold of. It's been often discussed. But Lamentabili is not so widely read anymore. So let's get to it. Starting, oh, by the way, the preface says that the following propositions are condemned and proscribed. All 65 of them condemned and proscribed. In fact, by this general decree, they are condemned and proscribed. Condemned and forbidden to be held. That's what the proscribed means. Condemned and forbidden to be held. Okay, let's take proposition number one. Some of these propositions are more about dogma. Others are more like canon law problems. You'll, you'll see. Number one, the ecclesiastical law, which prescribes that books concerning the scriptures be subject to previous examination, does not apply to critical scholars and students of the scientific exegesis of the Old and New Testament. End of the first. Why? So they okay, church, you know, you can demand prior censorship, whatever for, you know, prayer books and so on, if they're about the Bible, but not scholarly works. You dare not presume. Well, here's proposition number two. The church's interpretation of the sacred books is by no means to be rejected. Nevertheless, it is subject to the more accurate judgment and correction of the exegetes. Okay? The magisterium of the church kind of, you know, has a take on the broad picture. You can't just throw it away. But when push comes to shove, everything the church says is subject to correction by the critical exegetes. Oh, yeah. Number three, from the ecclesiastical judgments and censures passed against free and more scientific exegesis, one can conclude that the faith which the church proposes contradicts history, and that Catholic teaching cannot really be reconciled with the true origins of the Christian religion. Okay. I'm three propositions in, and there it is already. It's an out-and-out out heresy. Okay. 
You can't reconcile what the church teaches with what really happened in history. Okay. Um, number four. Even by dogmatic definitions, the church's magisterium cannot determine the genuine sense of the sacred scriptures. Get that. Even with dogmatic definitions, the church's magisterium cannot establish, determine the, the genuine sense of um, the sacred scriptures. In other words, the church has basically no power to tell us what the scriptures mean. Okay. It's up to the exegetes to tell us that. In the last analysis, it's up to them. Church has no power to tell us what these things mean, what these books mean. Okay. Once again, this is this 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 has both dogmatic and canonical implications. Here were the Catholic exegetes trying to get out from the under the weight of any ecclesiastical supervision. They were going to be free scholars. Yeah. Okay. If the definitions, even the solemn definitions of the church's magisterium cannot establish the genuine sense of the scriptures. Okay. How do we know that the dogmas on the Trinity and the Incarnation are true. Even if they seem to be in the Bible. Yeah. This is the church interpreting the Bible, isn't it? And when there's a fight over the right interpretation, the church finally intervenes. Let's the parties go at it for a while. And she intervenes and has a definitive judgment. And that can't get the genuine meaning either, according to the modernists. You see, magisterium paralyzed. Number five. Oh, this is a this is a luscious. Since the deposit of faith consists only of revealed truths, the church has no right to pass judgment on the assertions of the human sciences. No right to pass judgment on the assertions of the human sciences. Yeah, well, history is a human science, isn't it? Yeah. Philology. How about the scientific study of Greek grammar? What idioms mean and all this kind of stuff? So according to this, uh, the church can't say anything about what scholars put out in their field. Now, if you want to say, well, the church doesn't have much to say about mathematics, I agree. But they're not restricting it to highly abstract group theory. They're talking here about 
matters of history and philology and textual interpretation. So, yeah, 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 yeah. You've got something to do with the scriptures. Yeah, the church says that they're full of revealed truths. Yeah, yeah. Well, as far as it's a revealed truth, oh, Mother Church, you can talk about it. But that's all you can do. As far as it's a matter of history or doctrinal uh, or textual executive, you have nothing to say. Let's look at proposition number six. This is a luscious one, too. Have you heard of the Ecclesia Dicens and the Ecclesia Docens? No, I mean something to you. The learning church and the teaching church. The Ecclesia Dicens, the learning church. Ecclesia Docens, the teaching church. How do these relate to one another? Ah. The church learning and the church teaching collaborate in such a way in defining truths that it only remains for the church teaching to sanction the opinions of the church learning. There it is. Bishops, popes, cardinal, why you don't do anything but sanction the results of us scholars. Yeah. Well, let's get to proposition number seven, which interestingly enough was addressed and basically is condemned at Vatican II. In proscribing errors, the church cannot demand any internal assent from the faithful by which the judgments she issues are to be embraced. In other words, well, you know, the church, yeah, you know, if you're a clergyman in a diocese, the church can put some pressure on you. If you want to keep your job, you got to watch what you say. But the church can't, can't compel you to assent, can't give you any internal compulsion. And this, of course, the church explicitly rejected in Vatican II. As, it, as she had always before. Can demand, the church can demand no internal assent. Well, I beg to differ. It's precisely what the church demands. Yes. Okay. How about this? This is another self-serving goodie. Number eight. They are free from all blame who treat lightly the condemnations passed by the sacred congregation of the index or by the Roman congregations. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Father. Was your book put, book put on the index? Ah, not to cry, not to weep. Ah, take it all in stride. Nothing to it. <laughs> Number nine. They display excessive simplicity or ignorance who believe that God is really the author of sacred scripture. 
excessive uh, simplicity or ignorance who believe what the church tells them to believe. What am I supposed to believe about the scripture? It's the word of God, yes? God is the author of both testaments, yes? So if I believe that, I am, what? Ignorant in the extreme, naive, etc. Now, you know, I can imagine contexts in which a statement like this could be made. If you believe that Allah possessed the Quran with him from all eternity in Arabic, which is the Muslim position, I think you are naive. You're confusing the thought of God with the production of human texts in human languages. I, I'm sorry, I mean, I like Arabic grammar a lot, but I know it didn't exist from eternity. Okay? So, you know, I can think of ways that the doctrine of divine inspiration or divine authorship of the scriptures could be presented that would make it implausible to believe. But that's not what the Catholic Church does. Her presentation of these matters is very sophisticated and complex. Okay. The Catholic Church does not accuse the Holy Spirit of St. Paul's run-on sentences. Nor does she accuse the Holy Spirit of the Hebraisms in St. John's Gospel. Yeah. I, I know a couple of Protestant theories that do maintain that. Yes. Yes. What is the name of that evangelical college in South Carolina? Very famous place. Uh, famously rather segregationist. Uh, oh, gee. I used to know these things. Anyway, they maintain difference of style. St. Paul's style doesn't read like St. John's style or like the book of... That's all right. Different styles. The Holy Spirit has many different styles. The Holy Spirit just takes a style pill anytime he wants to write in a brand new way. Yeah. So I can imagine doctrines around this point that would be incredible, but not the Catholic one. It's perfectly credible. Everybody with me? Let's go to number 10. The inspiration of the books of the Old Testament consists in this. Oh, we're going to hear what inspiration is. Okay, okay, okay. Consists in this. The Israelite writers handed down religious doctrines under a peculiar aspect, which was either little or not at all known to the Gentiles. This makes it inspired. Yeah, okay, Hebrew prose has some oddities about it, Hebrew grammar. Yeah, that makes the Old Testament inspired. 
What is this? Does everybody see how stupid that is? Oh, but listen to this, number 11. Divine inspiration does not extend to all of sacred scriptures. So as to render its parts, each and every one, free from every error. No, 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 no. Now, in 1893, in Providentissimus Deus, Pope um, Leo XIII had taught exactly the opposite. Okay? So this is a rebellion against the doctrine of Leo. Here's nice advice for a young person getting started in these biblical studies and so on. This is number 12. If he wishes to to apply himself usefully to biblical studies, the exegete must first put aside all preconceived opinions about the supernatural origin of Holy Scripture and interpret it the same way as any other merely human document. Okay. In other words, to be a successful exegete, we're being told, you have to forget what you know to be true on divine authority. Okay. Pretend you can't tell the difference between Deuteronomy and Euclid's elements. Number 13. The evangelists themselves, as well as the Christians of the second and third generation, artificially arranged the evangelical parables. In such a way, they explained the scanty fruit of the preaching of Christ among the Jews. Uh Well, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where there would be heresy in that, but it's factually false and attributes um, a motive that is very implausible when the gospel is full of remarks about how stubborn the rabbinic authorities are being, why would any of the apostles have been surprised that there, that there wasn't a flood of Jewish comforts? The trickle only begins after Pentecost, after all. Why be surprised? Why would they invent a separate uh, theory that, you know? Anyway. Until the time, uh, no. Aha. Number 14. In many narrations, the evangelists recorded not so much things that are true as things which, even though false, they judge to be more profitable for their readers. Uh Uh-huh. So the Gospels are full of made-up fake stories that the Gospel writers would thought would make you feel good. And likewise, the Christians in the first couple of centuries. They thought, they put the stories in because they'd make you feel good. What do you think of that? 
Is this plausible? Um, you asked this. I, you've all been asked this question, I'm sure, before. But would you be prepared to face Roman contribution uh, persecution for stories that you knew were baloney, but which you thought would make people feel good? Gee, you're awful nice to me. You want me to feel good, so you're going to get crucified for it? Gee. <sighs> Number 15, until the time the canon was defined and constituted, the Gospels were increased by additions and corrections. Therefore, there remained in them only a faint and uncertain trace of the doctrine of Christ. We have an example of a glaring half-truth and a fallacious inference. Yeah, until sometime in the second century, I would guess, there were little additions and corrections being made to the text of the gospel. We know that because um, the, uh, the, the um, several endings uh, have come down in the tradition to the gospel of Luke. Uh, Mark, the last chapter of Mark has come down in several recensions, and the last chapter of John's gospel is missing in some recensions. So, yeah, there are little pieces that were put in at various points. And we don't know exactly when that process stopped, presumably by the end of the, by the middle of the second century, I'm not sure. But so there were these little additions and corrections being made. Therefore, there remains in the Gospels only a faint and uncertain trace of the doctrine of Christ. Huh? What's the therefore doing in there? It's got nothing to do with it. Does everybody see? Let me put my point another way. You cannot use the little factoids of redaction history to call into doubt the historicity of the Gospels. Can't be done. Logically, can't be done. Okay, how about this? Oh, you've all heard this one. The stories of John are not properly history, but a mystical contemplation of the gospel. The discourses contained in this gospel are theological meditations, lacking historical truth concerning the mystery of salvation. Mm -hmm. Well, you've no doubt all heard that. You know, the synoptics sound sort of like they were close to the events, but John's gospel is way up there, way off in, in later space. And, you know, it's just mystical stuff. But as a matter of fact, uh, everybody now recognizes that in many respects, John knows the situation in Palestine better than Luke did. John knows the geographical facts of the ministry of Jesus, where this town is and that well and so on, better than the synoptics do. And um, John also um, uh, comes into, well, his voice, I should say, comes into the synoptic tradition. 
in that famous Johannine saying, the Johannine Logion, which says what? The Johannine Logion. Anybody? We're muted here. In the beginning was the word. OG. Nobody knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son who has revealed him. Okay. God was revealed how? In Jesus Christ, who came down to us from the bosom of the Father. That's in John 1. Here it is again in Luke 13, Luke, Luke um, 11. Luke eleven twenty seven. The Johannine Logian. The, in other words, it's the verse in the synoptics record of the teaching of Jesus that sounds like it dropped out of St. John's Gospel. So he can't be that far from the original voice of Jesus, as these guys pretend. Oh, number 17, the fourth gospel exaggerated miracles. Forget that. Number 18, John claims for himself the quality of witness. Forget that. 19 is uh, sour grapes. Heterodox exegetes have expressed the true sense of the scriptures more faithfully than Catholic exegetes, said Loisy at one point. You know why? Because the heterodox exegetes weren't under ecclesiastical supervision, so they could put out all the ginchy ideas, and I couldn't, says Loisy. Yeah, Raymond Brown, too, but never mind that. Here is Loisy, pure and simple, number 20. Revelation could be nothing else than the consciousness man acquired of his relation to God. Hmm? No message, no directives, no propositions. I just become aware of having a relation to God. God loves me. That's all I know. The living is one of love. I love him. He loves me. How do I know he loves me? I just know it. That's all. There it is. A revelation reduced to a consciousness that you acquire by yourself of your knowledge to God, of of your uh, relation to God, and nothing says that that relation that you become conscious of is anything but a product of presumption. Does it? I hate to be nasty about it, but lots of people are presumptuous in statements about their relation to God. I remember it's in a lot of country songs. These beery old guys, beer bellied old guys come out of the bar and, you know, they, they, they've been in there with a, uh, with, with with the drinks and the gunslingers and the, but uh, me and Jesus we get along we're all right right 
Okay. Number 21. Revelation <coughs> constituting the object of the Catholic faith was not completed with the apostles. There it is. Okay. Exactly the opposite was defined at Trent and at Vatican I. Okay. But uh, there are, you know, there are, there are modernist theologians wanted to maintain that the church was, uh, you know, making up doctrines uh, well into the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century. Hell, the 20th century. Just keep making them up. Keep it going. Keep the business going. Uh, number 22. The dogmas the church holds out as revealed are not truths which have fallen from heaven. They are an interpretation of religious facts, which the human mind has acquired by laborious effort. All right, think about that one. The central thing there is a false dichotomy. Either it fell from heaven, or it something of <coughs> religious facts which we gradually uh, came to understand. Why can't they be the same? Why can't they both be true? Okay. I'm prepared to admit that a lot of work goes into the formulation of a dogma. A lot of work. It did in the fourth century. They weren't exactly sitting on their hands at the Council of Ephesus nor at Chalcedon, a lot of debates. Um, Pius IX uh, wrote to all the bishops of the world to gather their opinions about the definability of the Immaculate Conception, right? A lot of study went into that. And the provision had to be formulated just right. Read how it goes in the Latin. Okay. That Our Lady was, uh, never mind. By the grace of God, the pre-applied pre, um, pre, um, pre merits of Christ, freed from every stain of original sin, etc., etc. They had to get it just right because they didn't want to say uh, from the first instance of her existence, by the way, it says, which means they didn't want to say that before she had a human soul, she was already sanctified. They don't want to say that. Why would anybody want to say that? The first moment of her existence is the moment of ensoulment. That's when she's exempt from original sin. They, they worked over all of this stuff in great detail. So, yeah, it's an interpretation of religious facts, like the virgin birth, which the human mind has acquired with laborious effort. Yeah. And yet, it's a truth that fell from heaven. Because in the last analysis, we didn't make it up. It's been revealed to us. False dichotomies are dangerous.
I'm going to have to start selecting a little bit here. I'm running out of time. We're only on number 23. Opposition may and actually does exist between the facts narrated in scripture and the church's dogmas which rest on them. Thus the critic may reject as false facts which the church holds as most certain. Okay, what's the most obvious example you can think of? Of where a dogma rests directly upon a biblically narrated fact. Well, I think, um, well, there's the resurrection, obviously. But I, 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 for, for some reason, I was thinking of um, uh, Our Lady's um, uh, conception of our Lord. Yes. Um, we're told that the child was a gift of the Holy Spirit in Our Lady, right? Uh, and we have dogmas about that. And yet, ever since the 70s, Catholic exegetes have felt they were free to say, oh, well, of course, on the historical level, the uh, virginal conception is, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, I know what it is. It's a theologumenon. Does that mean a myth? No. Does it mean it's a fake? No. Does it mean it's true? No. When you don't want to admit that something is true, you come up with fancy words as alternatives. You don't want to go around saying, bishops, you're preaching falsehoods. No, majesties, bishops, you've mistaken a theologumenon for a biological fact. Oh, dummies that you are. How about number 24? This one is seditious. The exegete who constructs premises from which it follows that dogmas are historically false or doubtful is not to be reproved so long as he does not directly deny the dogmas themselves. <laughs> I got to get in so many words, I do not. But I can set up any number of premises which it follows that the dogma is false, and you can't touch me. Yes. This is the uh, Liberal Theologians Full Employment Act, huh? Oh, here's a, here's a fun one. Number 25, the ascent of faith rests ultimately on a mass of probabilities. Now, that sentence was written by Loisy, okay? Taken out of one of his book, one of his uh, Fermat articles, and here it is condemned. Loisy thought, that he was just quoting Newman. And when this condemnation came out, he said, oh, 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 those sorry bunch of Monsignor, they didn't realize I was quoting Newman. They condemned me for, never mind. Needless to say, what Loisy says has nothing to do with what Newman said, okay? The ascent of faith 
is given in response to converging probabilities. Okay? You get arguments from various quarters and you see how they come together to a common conclusion and that makes you more likely to go ahead and embrace that conclusion. It's, it's, it's the issue of independent evidence pointing in the same direction. Okay, Newman was very good about that. He did not mean to say, and he certainly did not say, that theological assent, once you give it, is based on probabilities. No, it's based on the word of God. Based on hearing the word of God. All right. Oh, I like this. Number 26. The dogmas of the faith are to be held only according to their practical sense. That is to say, as preceptive norms of conduct and not as norms of believing. Okay. So believe anything you want about the consecrated host. Just make sure you treat it like Jesus. Okay. So it doesn't matter if you deny transubstantiation, as long as you walk by the altar and say, hi, Jesus. What do you think? That sufficient orthopraxy? All right. Here is one from, uh, that, that one, by the way, is from Tyrrell and Leroy. Um, the divinity of Christ, this is number 27. The divinity of Christ is not proved from the Gospels. It is a dogma which the Christian consciousness has derived from the notion of the Messiah. I beg pardon. Um, I do believe I've read a few early patristic treatises and have found um, many appeals to scripture and so on to convince people of the divinity of our Lord. Think of uh, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifle of the Jew. Yeah. Where in that dialogue does 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 Justin rely on the etymology of Mashiach, Messiah? Where? Nowhere. But Loisy had a crackpot theory that would have justified this statement. It is permissible to grant that the Christ of history is far inferior to the Christ who is the object of faith. That's number 29. How many times have you heard the Jesus of history contrasted with the Christ of faith? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As though history said nothing to confirm our Lord's divinity. Did he do those miracles for? He just felt like picking up paralytics or something? 
Okay. I'm going to jump now to the resurrection. I got to jump ahead a bunch of propositions. This is number 36. The resurrection of the Savior is not properly a fact of the historical order. It is a fact of merely the supernatural order, neither demonstrated nor demonstrable, neither proved nor provable, which the Christian consciousness gradually derived from other facts. Okay. Um, the resurrection of Christ is not a fact of the historical order, but only of the supernatural order. Okay. Now you're not going to understand what that really means, how dangerous it is, until you go back and remember what I told you last time about Lavoisier's definition of miracles and how faith perceives the miracle. But when science looks at it, it's just the order of nature, just the natural course of events. One in the same course of events is a miracle when looked upon with the eyes of faith, and it's just natural procedure if looked upon with the eyes of science. Now, remember that history is trying to be a science. For a um, positivist like Loisie, history is science, okay? So if science cannot see miracles, can't attest to them, and by the way, go try telling that at Lourdes. How many things have happened there where doctors have been summoned to say, we can't explain this, the doctor says, I can't explain it either. Yeah, that cancer was there yesterday. I saw it. Now it's not there. In that sense, tell me science can't detect a miracle. Of course, science isn't going to say, well, God did it. Science just um, attests to the inexplicability of the event by natural process. And faith does the rest. Everybody see but look, if, if, if the difference between uh, miracle and nature is just what kind of rose-colored glasses you're wearing, uh, then it's um, uh, up to um, the individual to say what's supernatural, merely supernatural. How do you like that? It's not history. It's merely supernatural. Yes. Neither proved nor provable. I have a problem with the positivist approach to history. Positivism is a doctrine which wants to look at the facts, first of all the facts. A science of history 
that would meet positivist standards would have to be based upon ascertainable facts. Okay. Well, I don't, that's okay as far as it goes, isn't it? I don't want to say anything too absolute about that, but that seems more or less right. Ascertainable facts are going to be the basis of, okay. Well, what facts are ascertainable? Huh? Go back to those glorious years of the 1880s. When all of the world's political haggling and diplomatic work was done in writing, there were letters, secret correspondence, diaries by Disraeli and Gladstone and so on. And if you wanted to find out what was really going on in the parliament, you got the hold of that written record and you could find out the facts were ascertainable. And then a funny thing happened to the positivist demands on history. It's called a telephone. It was invented and the facts weren't ascertainable anymore. It all becomes he said, she said. Know what I mean? So I'm not interested when somebody says, well, the resurrection is not an historical fact. I wonder what are you what are you t- counting as an historical fact? Are you are you putting some untenable construction on what it takes to be an historical fact? Hmm? There you go. Uh, you know, I think a lot of loving marriages have been consummated. But would not, but that would not be ascertainable as an historical fact, because man and wife didn't say anything to anybody else about it. When you consummated your marriage, did you get it on the telephone? Did you write it in a diary? Did you? Hey, guess what I did last night? No, 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 no. This is private stuff, and yet it's real, isn't it? So beware of positivist doctrine about what is an ascertainable fact getting in the way of your acceptance of the historicity of things in the Gospels. Just beware of that. There are a whole lot of propositions coming next about the sacraments, but I'm going to switch to Proposition number 52. It's another real goodie. Get this. It was far from the mind of Christ to found a church as a society that would continue on earth for a long course of centuries. On the contrary, in the mind of Christ, the kingdom of heaven together with the end of the world was about to come immediately. Okay? This does two things. First of all, it accuses Christ, our Lord, of having not known uh, the, 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 uh, the, the truth about setting up the kingdom of God. He would have been guilty of a contemporary Jewish superstition about what the kingdom of God was. Okay? And 
theologically, it prevents anyone from identifying uh, the church uh, with the kingdom Christ preached. Now, you cannot have an acceptable theology of the church unless you make that identification. Did not Christ preach about his kingdom and how it would be? And it would be on, and and the parables, hey, don't they apply to the church? Yeah. Yeah. So number uh, 52 is a real um, destructive, really destructive one. Oh, number 53 is every liberal Catholic's favorite. The organic constitution of the church is not immutable. No, no, no. Like human society, Christian society is subject to a perpetual evolution. (laughs) Yeah. Perpetual evolution. Nothing permanent, nothing immutable about it. So never mind that the papacy uh, was established under divine law, by divine law. Never mind that the infallibility of the Holy Father is by divine law. No, 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 divine law. Here there's nothing, nothing permanent here. It's all just flip-flopping social arrangements. (sighs) I'm going to finish with number 58. Am I about out of time? Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm glad I got to number 58. You're going to love this one. Truth is no more immutable than man himself. Since it evolves with him, in him, and through him. Truth evolves with you, in you, and through you. So it's no more immutable than you are. How you like that? So, okay. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking a very cheerful fact about the square of the hypotenuse. It doesn't change because I do. On a unit square, the length of the hypotenuse is the square root of two. That's just it. And it doesn't matter if I decide, oh, that can't be right. Oh, no. We must have been too rationalistic in our early mathematics. We need a more dynamic mathematics. More spiritual. More otherworldly. I don't know. But you, you see what I'm saying. Truth is no more immutable than man himself. Is there any plausibility to such a claim? Nevertheless, it was made by Loisy and also by a Catholic philosopher prominent at the time known as Maurice uh, Blondel. Maurice Blondel. Okay. Well, if you can't tell the difference anymore, 
between the truth itself and some individual's apprehension of it. If you're so dumb you miss that difference, then you might be taken in by this and other stuff. But you're not that dumb. I think very few of us are, for which we all thank God for that in our Catholic faith to boot. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Good night to you. Thank you so much, Doctor. <laughs> for those who would like to, we've uh, got five or so minutes for a Q&A. If um, that would be okay, Doctor. That's fine. Certainly. Okay. Uh, oh, I also want to open up. You can post your questions in the Q&A box. I will also um, reactivate the chat box if that's easier to put a question in there. Um, first question is from Kelly. Kelly um, was hearing Father Hezekiah at the beginning saying how um, you, if you get epistemology right, you'll get the question about modernism right. And if you get epistemology wrong, you'll get modernism wrong. She would like for you to explain what epistemology is. Ah, epistemology is a philosophical reflection on the topic of knowing. When can I say that I know something as opposed to saying, well, I think maybe, or I opine it, I suppose it, I believe it, but can I say I know it? Okay, that's what epistemology is originally about and historically has been around. And despite the fact that it doesn't seem to sound like uh, much of a killer issue, it has produced major bloodshed uh, in the history of the West, in the history of philosophy itself. Um, I have a book to recommend about epistemology. It so happened that I just finished translating it. I didn't write it. I translated it. Uh, there was in um, the 1860s a prominent Jesuit who would be a Paredes at Vatican Council I. His name was Josef Kleutgen, K-L-E-U-T-G-E-N. He wrote a book called Pre-Modern Philosophy, Philosophie der Vorzeit, Pre-Modern Philosophy in which he defends uh, classical epistemology, Aristotelian, Thomistic, and so on, against all the modern theories from Descartes to Locke to Kant, and does a beautiful job of it. So I want to recommend that book. I'm sorry, it, uh, uh, the press seems to be taking forever getting it out. <laughs> So I can't hold it up and show you a copy, but it, it exists. Anyway, that's what epistemology is. It's a philosophical reflection on knowing. And the hot issues have turned out to be, can we know anything about the invisible, for example? Well, I, I should hope so. Neutrons are invisible. Electrons are invisible. Forces are, gravity is invisible. We can't know anything about the invisible? Come on, try again. What can't we know about exactly? Well, this, this is the kind of debate that you get in epistemology. I've got a second question here 
from um, Alan. It says, does the Holy Office's condemned propositions in Lamentabili mean that their opposites are to be held as infallibly defined doctrines? Only if the condemnation, only if the proposition condemned is a heresy, then its negation will be definable as a, doc, as a dogma. But if the proposition condemned is not a heresy, but it's just misleading or hopelessly ambiguous or something like that, then, then you can't make that statement. Thank you, Doctor. Um, we've got one more question here from Matthew. He's wondering if you could give examples of unorthodox devotional practices from, um, I'm going to say it wrong, Tyrell. Tyrell? Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not remembering offhand uh, which devotions he talked about in that book that uh, Van Hugo liked and found um, um, refreshing or unconventional. But you must be familiar. In general, we're all familiar with the idea of unconventional devotions. Um, um, certain um, ways of giving retreats have been condemned or criticized by the church. Um, certain ways of um, thinking about Our Lady have been condemned. It sounds very devotional to say, our Lord is in the Eucharist. Well, he got his flesh from Our Lady. So Our Lady's flesh is in the Eucharist. Is that true? Is the Eucharist a place for Mary? No, it is not true. It's no longer her flesh at all as soon as the child takes it. Yes. So, but you, you can see what kind of thing. Um, and uh, Oh, and Tyrrell, uh, I do remember this. Tyrrell was very harsh in condemning um, depressing thoughts about hell. Hmm. You mustn't dwell on that. Uh, hell was a rationalistically elaborated doctrine, and who knows what it was, mystically speaking. Yes. And we've heard lots of stuff of this kind, various traditional devotions rejected as too sentimental, some of them were, or too literalistic, or too sorrowful, or, or whatever, okay. too depressing. And in my opinion is that's not the basis on which you judge devotions approved by the church. The church's approval means the devotion is doctrinally sound. And then you look at how well it is received 
uh, in the parishes? Do the Catholic people flock to it? Do they do they profit by it? If it if they do, it's a it's a perfectly fine devotion. Okay, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.